Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Fanny, look, I've been thinking a lot about everything that's happened lately with Henriette, with the children, and what happened in Dieppe. I know this may upset you, but take a moment and think about this before you react. We need some time away. Time away? Away from what? From each other. Things haven't been good. A tantrum! Perfect! Time away from us living in separate quarters? Time away from us speaking only through the children? All right, just a moment. Imagine the stir our separation would cause. Or is that what you want? All right, that's enough. Forget I said anything. Teo, Teo, why don't you love me like you used to? What happened to you? It isn't me that's changed. I see. Well, Teobald, husband of mine, light of my life, do you see these rings on our fingers? These tokens of our eternal bliss? As long as we're both alive, they bond us. You're mine until the day you die. Fanny and Theo, the Duchess and Duke of choiseul prolan in France, were married 23 years until tragedy struck. When they met, it was an instant connection. Fanny wrote in her journals that she fell madly in love with Theo immediately. But love changes over time, and after 20 years, Fanny and Teo's happiness had run out. Then in the summer of 1847, Fanny was found dead on her bedroom floor. This is Unsolved Murder's True Crime Stories on the Parcast Network. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. This is our first episode on Fanny Sebastiani, the Duchess de Choiseul Prolan. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. So let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. We also now have merch. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. You can listen to previous episodes of Unsolved Murders, as well as all of Parcast's other shows, wherever you listen to podcasts. Fanny Sebastiani was born in 1807 in Constantinople, known now as Istanbul, Turkey. Her grandmother, the Madame de Kwani, was a well-to-do woman who was notoriously cold-hearted. She had many lovers, but little love to give. Madame de Kwani only got married because she was expected to. Her husband got on her nerves, and she hated feeling like a kept woman. In order to keep up her spirits... She had several affairs. Well, then, in 1778, only a few years after she married, Madame de Quani gave birth to a daughter, Antoinette Jean. 
The madam loved her more than anything else. Even though Antoinette may have been the progeny of one of her lovers, she made sure Antoinette had everything she ever wanted. Antoinette Jean eventually married the wealthy Horace Sebastiani in 1806. At the time, Napoleon Bonaparte was emperor of France, and French forces had just taken control of the Ionian islands that lie between Italy and what was then the Ottoman Empire. Antoinette's new husband, Horace, was a politician and army general. As a general, he was obligated to move to Constantinople so that he could strategically maintain new French territories. So, despite Madame de Quani's protests, Antoinette and her new husband Horace left for Constantinople only a few months after they were married. The move was hard on Antoinette. The quickest route was to travel across the water. But the stormy seas made Antoinette ill. The newlyweds opted for an overland route, and for weeks they traveled via caravan in the searing August sun. It was during this trip that Antoinette learned that she was pregnant. The baby was born on April 14, 1807, and she was named Françoise Altarice Rosalba Sebastiani della Porta, Fanny for short. Three weeks after Fanny's birth, her mother, Madame de Sebastiani, died. Travel and childbirth were too much for her body to bear. Horace was shattered after the death of his wife. Feeling lost and depressed, he visited Madame de Quani with a request. Monsieur Sebastiani? Madame, knowing how decimated I am at the loss of Antoinette, I can only imagine how you must feel. I am so sorry. Perhaps if you hadn't taken her across the continent, she would still be here. Maybe this is true. I, I am afraid I cannot be a suitable father to Fanny right now. She needs a woman's love, not the life of an army general. She needs her grandmother. Madame de Quani took in the infant Fanny, but she was so sickened with grief that for years she blamed Fanny for Antoinette's death. She would compliment Fanny, but each compliment came with a backhanded barb, insisting Fanny would never be as good as her mother. For example, Fanny received a letter at eight years old, eight years after Antoinette had died. Dearest little Fanny, I hope that you have been thinking of me and will kiss me when I return. That will be when I am feeling better and am no longer weeping because your mother is dead. Ever focused on the loss of her daughter, Madame de Quani was rarely present for her granddaughter. Instead, a well-known governess named Mademoiselle Mendelssohn watched over Fanny. Miss Mendelssohn had a reputation for what people called, quote, passing on evil vices to their children, end quote. Others described her as having a bad touch. She was well known to be cold and formal to the children she looked after. Instead of the warm, loving home that her father hoped that she'd have, Fanny's childhood was marked by loneliness and little affection. Along the way, she learned that she could get attention in pretty much whatever she wanted, if she fussed long enough or loudly enough. Fanny, time for supper. I don't want to eat. Fanny, time for a bath. I don't want to take a bath. Fanny, time to get dressed. I don't want to get dressed. But Miss Mendelssohn didn't punish Fanny when she misbehaved. She simply ignored her. Being ignored was the worst thing for Fanny. She longed for love that felt real. By the time Fanny was 16 years old, she was gorgeous, intelligent, independent, 
and dead set on marrying someone who would truly love her. Her grandmother began searching for a suitable husband, but Fanny did not want an arranged marriage. Duke de Fitzjames is a bore. I can't spend my life with him. Fanny, I've reviewed nine proposals for you. I hate all of them. My dear, only fools marry for love. You must choose a logical partner. His name is Charles Laruga Theobald. He is charming and handsome, and I've already fallen madly in love with him. That boy is 19 going on 12. You are a mature and headstrong woman. You will crush him. Perhaps we will crush each other. It's no matter if it's truly meant to be. Fanny always got her way, and this time was no different. Eight days after Fanny called off the wedding with Monsieur de Fitzjames, Theobald's father came to ask for Fanny's hand on behalf of his son. Like Fanny, Theobald, the Marquis de Prelan, came from a family with money. Born in Paris, he was the eldest son of a man who was a deputy and leader of the National Guard under the First French Empire. He was also a member of a royal advisory board called the Court of Peers, which was essentially an honorary title with very few duties. Noble peerage was a fitting status for Teo's docile manner. The famous writer Victor Hugo described him as a man who, quote, looked like he was always about to say something, but didn't, end quote. Teo's quiet, reserved air was no match for Fanny's outspoken one. Perhaps they found in each other a balance that they thought they lacked in themselves. Perhaps the physical attraction muddied any process of logic in the business of marriage. They got married on October 18, 1824, and their wedding was the event of the year. It brought together the wealthy Sebastiani Quani clan and the historic Choiseul Pralan. The union of these families also brought together three warring noble factions, the counter-revolutionary supporters of Napoleon Bonaparte, who wanted a strong leader with a military presence, supporters of the Duke of Orléans and his brother King Louis XIV, who were made up of liberals and intellectuals, and the family of King Louis XVII, conservatives who believe the monarchy should be made up of a family dynasty. Even if one of George H.W. Bush's sons married Chelsea Clinton, their marriage wouldn't match the significance of 17-year-old Fanny Sebastiani marrying 19-year-old Theo Choiseul Prolan. This wedding had a powerful effect in unifying the French nobility. Yet even more potent than political unity was the fact that Fanny and Theo seemed to truly love each other. For a while, they were ridiculously happy. They were always together at parties, dinners, the theater, opera. People wanted to be around them and wanted to be them. Theo, did you ever think it would be this wonderful? I'm on top of the world. <laughs> and you are as radiant as ever. I think the only thing that could make things better is if we had a family with whom we could share our joy. So soon? We were only married a year ago. Don't you want time to live? Just the two of us? For what? Sorrow shared is sorrow halved, and joy shared is joy doubled. The more children we have, the happier we'll be. And so, Fanny and Teo focused on expanding their family, and it didn't take long. In 1826, just two years after they were married, Fanny gave birth to their first child, Isabel. The next 13 years brought them eight more children, 
and several more considerable changes to their personal and political lives. By 1840, Napoleon no longer ruled France, though Théo kept his noble status with the new, more liberal King Louis-Philippe I. At home, the Pralin brood was now 11 strong. Fanny and Théo, plus Isabelle, Louise, Bert, Alice, Marthe, Gaston, Leontine, Horace, and the youngest, Reynald. After nine children, the bonds of love between Fanny and Theo had frayed. She felt unattractive and matronly, despite the fact that she was only 33 years old. She obsessed over fears that her once radiant skin was now dull, that her youthful passion now just sounded like a shrill nag to her husband's ears. She became needy, demanding that Theo be more demonstrative in his love for her. Though they lived in the same house, she wrote him letters day and night, begging him to write back. This only pushed him further away. The wedge between the Prelans wasn't entirely Fanny's fault. Theo pressured her to have more children, but being a mother nine times over had taken its toll on Fanny's body and mind. When Fanny's looks began to change, Theo started ignoring her. The more she worried... The more depressed and jealous she got, the less he wanted to be around her. Their relationship had turned into a vicious cycle of neediness and resentment. Teo, darling, I've been waiting for you all morning. Let's lunch together, shall we? Where are the children? I don't know. I'm sure they're somewhere. Don't you think you should know where the children are? You don't know either, do you? I see. They're likely with the governess, learning, playing, they're doing exactly what children should do. Why don't you and I do what adults do? Fanny, adjust your dress. You're practically falling out of it. I'm going to see the children. The children? Or the governess? I assure you, I care too much about our children to distract their caregivers. But Fanny didn't trust Teo, and she soon fired their governess. Then she fired the next one, and the next. Ultimately, the children were left in Fanny's care, which was hardly any care at all. Growing up in a cold household, Fanny had no maternal instinct. The way she usually interacted with her children was to use them against her husband. When Fanny was unhappy, she made sure everyone else was too. Teo knew the children needed more stability, and he began to explore how to get what he wanted from his wife. Darling, it's unfair that you have the burden of looking after so many children. Let the experts do it. Let's get back to the way things used to be. Oh, Teo, do you mean it? Of course I do. Now please, get dressed and meet me in the parlor. Our applicant should be here any minute. Oh, Teo, it will be delightful. But Fanny's hopes of everything going back to the way it was were soon dashed. Good evening. Hello, I'm Henriette Deluzzi. I'm here to interview for the governess position. The interview would go well for Henriette, but accepting the job had drastic consequences for all involved. We'll dive deeper into the lives of the Choiseul Prolans after this. And now, back to the story. In 1841, in France, Fanny Choiselle Prolant had spiraled into an unhappy marriage. She was withdrawn, uninterested in her children, and most likely had postpartum depression. 
Her passionate nature, once buoyant with dreams of spending her time with the love of her life, was now hysterical. Fanny's husband, Teo, had lost interest in life in general. His position as a noble peer was controversial, and at this time in history, French politics were synonymous with upheaval. Since the revolution in 1789, kings and leaders were regularly deposed, and in 1841, the country was holding tight to a temporary stability. Thousands of new jobs had been created thanks to the start of the Industrial Revolution. Yet, more than half of France was unemployed. To make matters worse, only landowners could vote, which meant that the wealthiest 1% of the population was making decisions for the entire country. As a member of royal society, the people's disdain for Teo was palpable. In an effort to ignore this negative atmosphere, Teo focused on his children. He convinced Fanny to hire a governess, and the new governess, Henriette de Luzy, was as different from Fanny as anyone could have been. In 1811, Henriette's mother, Lucille Desportes, fell in love with a soldier of modest means. Lucille's parents would not grant her permission to marry the soldier, but before he left to fight the war, Lucille became pregnant with his child. Her parents were embarrassed to have a daughter pregnant out of wedlock, even though Lucille had wanted to marry the man. I told you I loved him. You did. And then I forbade you to see him. I'm not sorry about what I did. If you insist on such impudence, then I have no choice. Leave my house. You are no longer welcome here. Lucille had no other family and nowhere to go. She had no skills with which she could earn an income. Her father had initially agreed to give her an allowance of 3,000 francs per year, the equivalent to about $10,000. Yet that same year, Lucille's father lost his job. So after the first allowance, Lucille no longer had a reliable income with which to raise her little Henriette. Growing up in poverty, Henriette's childhood was spent traveling from rooming house to boarding school to dilapidated flat. Lucille encouraged Henriette to keep their financial troubles to herself, and as a result, Henriette became self-conscious and isolated from other children. Years passed without Lucille reconciling with her family. Even after Lucille's mother died, Lucille's father refused to acknowledge Henriette's existence. When Henriette turned 13, Lucille sent her to a boarding school with a woman named Madame Saleh. Here, Henriette demonstrated such a talent for drawing and design that Lucille decided to take her daughter out of school and apprentice her to an engraver. There, she would learn the basics of a trade that could earn her a living. The engraving trade was anything but glamorous. Kept for hours in a small, dark workshop, Henriette lasted for two years before frequent illness made her quit the business altogether. At 17 years old, she returned to sketching and drawing and began studying with an artist named Delorme. This wasn't the end of Henriette's troubles, however. In 1832, eight months after beginning studies with Delorme, Lucille died during a cholera epidemic. Henriette was frozen with grief, but the Delorme family took her in while she finished her studies. She eventually achieved mediocre success in painting. Yet Henriette was lonely. She had little money and no dowry, which made her less appealing to marry. Seeing no other option, she took a position as a governess in London. All she really wanted was a family to love, and perhaps the family she worked for may even love her back. 
Starting in 1836, she cared for a family in England until 1840, when their child grew into adulthood. Then, in 1841, when Henriette was 27 years old, she applied to work at the Chateau de Prelon in Paris, France. Mademoiselle Delouzy, please come in. Bonjour, Monsieur Parlon. How do you do? Another day, another adventure. Oh, you're here already, Miss... Delouzy. Henriette Delouzy. Pleased to meet you, Madame Parlon. I haven't heard of you. Why not? I've just completed a position as governess in England not too long ago. The Lady Hislop's daughter, Nina, was my charge and a wonderful girl. Now a woman who is to be married. Is Delouzy your married name? It was my father's name. Deport is my mother's name. They've both passed away. You don't want a family of your own? Fanny. I want to know if she's going to run off and leave us. We don't need to hire someone who will leave in six months. Think of the children, Teo. I'm afraid my time for love and marriage may have passed, Madame Prowlon. But that's why I'm able to throw myself into my work. My children aren't easy. That's okay. I find that with love, most people soften up. We'll see about that. Children! The children immediately fell in love with Henriette. She was generous and kind, warm and comforting, highly unlike their mother. She supported the children, listened to them, she liked being around them. After a revolving door of governesses, it was like nothing they'd experienced before. As an adult, Fanny had become the jealous type, but she'd never been as paranoid as she was after Henriette arrived. She saw how her husband enjoyed sitting in on the children's lessons with Henriette. He was more relaxed and, understanding how much Fanny hated domestic work, he no longer asked her to help with the children or the house. Fanny was left to her own devices and she hated it. Fanny wrote letter after letter to her husband, telling her servants to slip the missives under his door any time of day or night, and she expected immediate answers. Dear darling, whatever is the matter, how can you just ignore your wife, the woman for whom you, seemingly yesterday, declared your love? What happened between us that you don't even want to speak with me? Perhaps not even look at me any longer than you'd speak to a stranger. Fanny was desperate for attention. So one day, she called her servants to her bedroom. Yes, madam? Marie? Jerome? Come here, please. I need to speak with you about something. Yes, madam? I'm missing my best jewelry. I have not been in here all day, madam. Certainly don't believe that I... I know it's not either of you. You've been in my house for years. You would have stolen from me already if you wanted to. It's Mademoiselle de Luzy, of course. I see her eyeing my jewels all the time. I can't blame her. She comes from an impoverished background, after all. But I do need a favor. Anything, Madame Prolon. I need you to watch her. Closely. I know she may seem kind, but I believe she has other intentions. Fanny had lied to get eyes on Henriette, but her staff was loyal and intent on keeping their jobs. 
They watched Henriette closely, but years would pass without them finding anything to report. By 1844, Henriette had been working for the Pralons for four years. The children had settled into their new governess, and they were finally feeling happy and stable with someone they trusted and even loved. Fanny was busy with her social life, and Teo was grateful for peace in the house. But soon came a day when their happiness was threatened. During the summer of 1844, tensions between France and Morocco were building over the port of Algiers. King Louis-Philippe was still presiding over the French people, and the elite class, people like Teo, were getting richer and richer, while the middle and lower classes were losing money. Jerome, stop here. Do you need help out of the carriage, sir? That's all right. I'll just be a minute inside. Excuse me, sir. Are you Theo Choiseul Prolon of the Noble Peers? I am. How can I help? <laughs> you can resign from corruption and give power to the people. Looking to get away from the tumult at home, Teo planned for the family to visit one of their favorite vacation spots, Dieppe, a small fishing town about 120 miles northeast of Paris. Set on the English Channel, Dieppe was a chic seaside resort often visited by well-to-do families like the Prolongs. Teo, Fanny, and all their children went on this trip, along with Henriette. At one point, while lounging on the beach, Fanny and Teo got into an argument. Tonight we should dine with the Bizets, darling. Not tonight, Fanny. We've only just arrived. Let's stay home. We got here three nights ago. Aren't you bored of the same thing every day? Breakfast, garden, lunch, beach, dinner. Breakfast, garden, lunch, beach, dinner. At least at home I have friends to distract me. This is miserable. Perhaps you could distract yourself with your current company. Henriette seems to be having a fine time. Oh. Henriette is having a fine time? Well, isn't Henriette just the model of everything a woman should be? Except that she's not much to look at. Even with the age difference, I'm much more beautiful than she. That's hardly what this is about. So your admiration for her goes beyond looks. You're such a gent, Teo. You wouldn't like her so much if you knew she'd been stealing from me. That's a lie and you know it. Why would I lie about such a thing? The staff told me you had them spying. It's shameful, Fanny. You're going to take the side of the help instead of the word of your own wife? You're sick, Fanny. You're a lonely woman who sits in her room trying to figure out how to make others just as miserable as you. And I swear you'd do a fine job if I let you. Teo's words cut Fanny like a knife. She knew they hadn't been happy in a long, long time, but he had never lashed out at her like that especially when the children were within earshot. Fanny retreated into the house once again to sequester herself in a room, but she wouldn't stay there for long. At sundown, just as the children were getting ready for dinner, Fanny descended the home's long staircase. Fanny, where are you going? We'll be sitting down for dinner in an hour. Fanny! But Fanny was transfixed, staring out onto the beach. Would you like company? Fanny continued onto the beach, toward the water. And she just kept going. Fanny! Teo chased after his wife, swimming out to where the waves had quickly taken her. 
The waters off Dieppe were known for being rough and quite deep. Fanny had given up. She didn't struggle as the waves crashed over her head, tossing her around. All but one of the children had run out of the house to try and help. Five-year-old Reynald was in the bath. Henriette heard the commotion, pulled him out of the tub, and wrapped him in a towel. You stay here. I'll be right back, okay? Henriette ran out of the house and saw Teo in the rough waters. She grabbed a rope from the front steps and instructed the children to toss it out to their father, who had finally reached Fanny and was trying to keep her afloat. He was having trouble reaching the shores, and the children pulled the rope as Teo and the dazed but breathing Fanny slowly found dry land. Henriette ran back into the house, only to find something even more horrifying. Little Reynald was bent over in the tub, face down in the water. He had reached across the tub for a toy, fell forward, and had floundered in the water, unable to breathe. His body was motionless, crumpled over the tub like a rag doll. Reynald! Henriette rushed to the tub to haul the boy out of the water, but he was already unconscious. Isabel, Teo, Alice, come here quickly. Someone, come quickly. What is it? Send Alice for the doctor. She's the fastest. Reynald needs help. Send her quickly. Before ambulances, people had to rely on a runner to find medical help when they needed it. One could only hope a doctor was available. Fortunately, the Prolans found help that day. Soon they revived Renald, and the entire vacation became about making sure that the children were safe. Exactly the opposite desired effect of Fanny's self-admitted ploy for attention. Teo, worried about his wife's health, suggested she take an extended holiday away from the family. She retreated to her hometown in Corsica to relax and revive. During the rest of the summer of 1844, Teo and Henriette became closer than ever. They had shared two near tragedies. They shared the common interest of the children, and they both had worked to keep Fanny content. When they returned to Paris in the late summer, Fanny was still in Corsica. Teo had tickets to a concert and he took Isabel and Henriette out for the night. It had been a challenging summer. Little did they know that Fanny's spies were all over town, and their night out would set off a chain of events that would end in murder. We'll take a close look at the events leading up to Fanny's death after this. And now, back to the story. The summer of 1844 had been a challenging summer for Fanny de Choiselle Pralon and the Pralon children. After Fanny's suicide attempt, the children were back in Paris with their father and Henriette, while Fanny convalesced in Corsica. During this time, Theo, Henriette, and the Pralon children grew even closer. They dined together, went out to see music, theater, and the opera, and talked to each other around the fire. Henriette felt like she'd found her family. Fanny returned to the house in September of 1844, and she tried to regain the peace she felt while in her hometown. She saw her friends, went to dinner, and spoke to the children when she had to. One bright spot for her was the wedding of her eldest daughter, the 19-year-old Isabel. Herman Cordero, a man of middling royalty in northern Italy, had asked for her hand. Isabel and Hermann's wedding brought Fanny closer to her daughter and even to Henriette. 
No one could deny her excitement about the engagement, and for the entire year of 1845 leading up to the September wedding, the 38-year-old Fanny was sufficiently distracted. She was even charming. We'll have every flower you can imagine, and the best lunch, and music. Who do you prefer? Chopin? I think it could be a wonderful choice for the wedding day, don't you, Isabel? Of course, Mother. Whatever you think. Of course it will. I'll talk to Frederick. He loves me. You are going to have a wonderful time, and you will be so happy, my dear. Now let's find you the perfect thing to wear. But not long after the wedding and after Isabel had moved out, Fanny crashed. She was bored. She was depressed. She needed something to do. Her father came to visit in January of 1847 when Fanny was 40 years old and unintentionally created a stir. Father, welcome. Fanny, lovely to see you. You look tired. I am. Reynald has so much energy. What about the governess? Henriette? Oh, I don't know where she is. That's strange. Why is it strange? Uh, no reason. Where's the man of the house? I haven't seen him either. Reynald wanted to put together a puzzle, and I figured I should spend time with him. At least once a week. Well, I'm sure they're somewhere. Hopefully not running off to another concert. Excuse me? Oh, uh, nothing, Fanny. I, I was joking. Teo went to a concert? No, I... Fanny, let's go inside. But the seeds of suspicion were planted once again. Fanny pressed for more information, even from her spies, but there was a secret no one wanted to tell her. Eventually, Horace admitted to her that he'd heard people talking about her husband and her governess. People had seen them alone together on the town. And I have to hear from my own father about you cavorting around town with the help? How do you think that makes me look? Clearly, you're overreacting. That's always your explanation. It's not that you have done something wrong, it's that I am overreacting. It's so very convenient for you, isn't it? Please, calm down. I will not calm down. How long has this been going on, Teo? Please. Since Isabel's wedding, Henriette looked lovely in her borrowed dress that day, didn't she? Or was it before then? Was it when I went away to Corsica? Nothing is scintillating for a budding relationship than to have your wife try and kill herself. Go ahead and deny it. You're being ridiculous. And you're not denying it. I refuse to be questioned in my own home. Monsieur? Madame? Is everything all right? It's fine. The children are frightened. We're fine. Tell them everything's all right. Everything is most certainly not all right. I can't stand to see you two even look at each other. And the way you act with her in front of the children, that's what's the most embarrassing. I can't even imagine what they must think of you. And that's when Teo raised a hand to Fanny. He pushed her against the wardrobe and put his hand to her throat. You listen to me, Fanny. We can't live like this. You can threaten me, but as far as the children are concerned, we are happy as can be. Understood? And they wouldn't live like this, not for much longer. In 1847, a new economic depression hit France. Bad harvests, a poor railroad system, and political corruption had led to a third of the country being on social welfare. 
The lower and middle classes were getting antsy, and the elites were feeling the tension. A similar tense quiet had settled into the Pralon household. Fanny Choiselle Pralon's spies had reported to her father about a possible affair between her husband and her children's governess. Though none of our sources can confirm that Henriette and Theo were having an affair, their behavior appeared that way to others. The children knew something was amiss, and Henriette was nervous to be in the house. Henriette, I hate to tell you this, but I think it may be wise if you take a sabbatical. Excuse me? From the children, uh, just for a few months. I'm afraid the children are unhappy with all the tension in the house. And frankly, I'm afraid that Fanny is getting more violent than I've ever seen her. Does she need a doctor? Perhaps. But I don't want you here for all the dramatics. Please, you don't know how much I care for you. I mean, your safety. I will miss the children terribly. I know. They'll miss you too. As will I. In March of 1847, despite protest from the children, Henriette de Luzy left the Prolon household with a sizable severance check. She was once again alone in a boarding room. While the professional relationship had ended, Theo and the children visited Henriette weekly, without Fanny knowing. Despite this secrecy, things were somewhat back to normal in the Prolon household. Well, normal meaning Theo and Fanny barely spoke. Fanny stayed in her room and had the servants slip letters to Teo under his bedroom door. He went on with his day-to-day business as a noble peer, avoiding the public whenever he could. Then, on August 17, 1847, when Teo and the children arrived home after visiting Henriette, something had changed. Teo? Teo, come say hello and bring the children, would you? Here we are, darling. Fanny was disheveled. It had been days since she'd showered. She looked unwell and unhappy, but she had a slight smile on her face. Don't you all look nice? Thank you, darling. Now, to bed, everyone. What are you all looking so nice for? Did you see a concert? I love concerts. We didn't see a concert. I know. I asked my friends, where did you go? Did you go to the theater? We did not go to the theater. I know that. I asked my friends about that, too. So, where did you go? And where have you been going when you go out every week? Children, to bed. Why can't they tell me? Berta? Gaston? Where do you go together like a big happy family? Don't, Fanny. I can't ask my children a simple question? Children, look at your father for a moment. Take a good look. And now, I want to ask you, do you know what an adulterer is? Fanny! Because that's your father. He's a cheat, a liar, and an adulterer. Fanny was unhinged, and Teo was mortified. It took him hours to console the children. They hated seeing their parents fight, and worse, seeing their mother act so strangely. He was livid. He went to bed that night unable to sleep. Around 3 a.m., the maid Marie 
slipped a letter under Teo's door. About an hour later, at 4.15 in the morning, the house staff heard a single ring of Fanny's bell. Surprised to hear her call, they climbed the stairs to a room. When they arrived at Fanny's door, they were shocked at what they saw. The window was open. Lamps and chairs were overturned. A trail of blood ran across the room. And on the floor, underneath the bell, lay the Duchess de Prelan, barely breathing. She had multiple stab wounds in her throat. Blood dampened the hair on the side of her head. She tried to speak when the servants arrived, but instead her mouth moved silently, blood filling her throat. The servants ran down the hall to retrieve Teo, whose bedchamber was separated by Fanny's by a single room. Blinded by sleep and worry, Teo ran down the hall to his wife's bedroom and gathered her in his arms. Fanny struggled with her last breath, closed her eyes, and died. Her life, which had become so unhappy, had finally ended. On the next episode, we'll find out exactly what happened the night Fanny was murdered. We'll also examine the events in the week that followed when a second person in this royal love triangle will die. Thanks again for tuning in to Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next Tuesday with part two of the murder of Fanny de Choiselle Prolon. You can find more episodes of Unsolved Murders, as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler and developed by Ron Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Unsolved Murders is written by Terry Saluki and stars Carter Roy and Wendy McKenzie. The amazing cast of voice actors includes, by alphabetical order, Mike Capozzi, Jerry Courtney Austin, Kimberly Holland, and Steve Pinto. <laughs>